Good morning. He is risen. And I miss hearing back this morning, he is risen indeed. Hopefully you say that today. Uh, welcome to this time of worship at Old Oak Bible Church and a happy Easter Resurrection Sunday to you and to your family. Uh, we pray that you are safe. We miss you. Uh, we, we love you. And we are trusting that God is at work in this time as every week and that we hold on to the truth, especially today, that not even the grave could hold Jesus back, that uh, Jesus overcome and, and conquered sin and death. And we long and hold on to the truth even today in the midst of a pandemic that as Jesus rose from the dead, he will one day return and make all things new. If this is your introduction to Old Oak Bible Church, welcome. My name is Steve Barbie. I'm one of the pastors here at Old Oak. And we are in Middleburg Heights. We are right by Southwest General Hospital. And you'll be helped today just with some logistical things you may have received by email or you can look at our Facebook page, an online bulletin that will guide you through worshiping with us this morning. It includes several different songs and scripture readings and even a, a basic guide to the sermon this morning. Uh, we pray that you utilize that and it'd be helpful to you. Uh, also, uh, we are called and we have an opportunity to continue to support the work of the ministry. And so we want to be good stewards of what the Lord has given us uh, by taking good care of our finances. Uh, we know and uh, we are well aware that this is a, a difficult time, an unprecedented difficult time uh, in, in that area for many people. So if, you, if we ask that you give what you can, that you give sacrificially, that you give cheerfully. Uh, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. You can mail in any donations uh, to Old Oak Bible Church. You can find our address on our website at 7575 Old Oak Boulevard. That's Middleburg Heights, Ohio. Uh, or you can give online at oldoakbiblechurch.org and just find the little give button there. What we want to do now as we head into God's word is settle our hearts, calm our hearts, and pray to the Lord. Let's pray together. God of our exodus, great was the joy of Israel's sons when Egypt lay defeated. Far greater the joy when the Redeemer's foe lay crushed in the dust. Jesus, you stride forth as the victor, the conqueror of death, hell, and all opposing might. And you have bursted the bands of death, trampled the powers of darkness down, and you live forever. Lord, in the resurrection, show us proof of your accepted offering for our sin. Show us the proof that the claims of justice are satisfied, that the devil's scepter is crushed. Lord, give us assurance in the resurrection that in Christ we died, in him we rose, in his life we live, in his victory we triumph, in his ascension we shall be glorified. Lord, we ask that you be with the people of Old Oak today, those who are feeling anxious, even lonesome, be close to them. We ask God that you would keep us bound together in unity, unity in the gospel God, we ask that you be with those all who are still affected and are continually affected by the COVID-19 virus. That you show mercy, Lord, to those who have the virus, 
to families who have lost loved ones to this virus, many there are. Show mercy to healthcare workers, to government leaders. God, we need you in this time. Please have mercy. God, we ask that you be with other churches this morning, especially Resurrection Sunday, as, as many are scattered apart. We thank, we thank you for faithful gospel-preaching churches, especially in Northeast Ohio. And we pray that you be with Parkside, Westside, and Lakewood, and the, their pastor, Matthew McCalvey. Would he preach your word faithfully this morning with hope and joy, with love, and with just an aim to glorify you? Would you bear much fruit through Parkside, Westside today? God, we pray also for the people of Kenya. Lord, we're humbled that uh, we, have, we have many medical resources here and still are affected greatly by this virus, but uh, to see countries with far less than we do and the virus go there, God, we ask again for your mercy that you would make uh, the hope of the gospel known, that you would intervene uh, your sovereign hand to stop this virus in Kenya, uh, and that, God, you would, your grace would be shown there. Lord, as we head into your word, speak to us, speak to our hearts, and help us walk away from this time uh, not forgetting what we have heard, not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word also. So shape us, Lord, and glorify your great name through us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I know you are getting restless. Uh, it is Easter Sunday, and you're at home and we're not here, we're not together. Um, I don't know about you, I don't know how you've experienced it, but these last few weeks have felt like a few months to me. You know, it's only been, I think, just a couple of weeks, not even a couple of weeks, since Ohio uh, announced the stay-at-home order, that it would last through all of April. And when Governor DeWine announced that, I said, oh, okay, uh, a little bit of clarity, I think we could do, we could do a month. We could do a month, all of April, knowing that. And then April started, and it has felt like Phil Connors from Groundhog Day. Just an endless cycle, seeming we are trapped in it, and we are not even halfway through it. I know I'm notoriously a glass half empty kind of guy. These last few weeks, we've dealt with realities that are always in front of us, but realities that often make us feel anxious and make us feel powerless and that even make us feel afraid. These are realities that are always in front of us, but especially in front of us right now in our current situation. These last three weeks, we've dealt with the realities of uncertainty, of suffering, and the reality of death. Each week, each of those in turn. And each week, we've sought to stare at the gospel in light of these realities. So we've seen how the gospel meets us in uncertainty, how we get rest from circumstances beyond our control, calmed by the God who entered the darkness so that we know he is always with us when we are in the darkness. We've seen the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God who lived, died, and rose again in the place of sinners. We've seen how that gospel meets us in suffering giving us assurance that we have a God who is not out of touch with suffering, but a God who participated in suffering himself. A God who is sovereign over all things, including suffering, bending evil, even evil like a cross, for his good and, our, and his glory. 
We've seen how the gospel meets us in death. Not by avoiding death, but by seeing death for all that it is. And then seeing Jesus for all that he did to overcome the power of death by rising from the dead. So today, we pick up a topic that's slightly different from the topics the last three weeks, but it's no less real. Today's topic is similar to COVID-19. You know, from the beginning, one of the difficulties of managing and responding to this virus is that we can't see it. I don't know how many times you've heard it, but we've heard this called the invisible enemy. And it's caused a lot of people to wonder why we would halt our entire society for something that we can't see. It's caused a lot of people to wonder, is is all of this really worth it? So all of us can see the realities of uncertainty and suffering and death. All of us have some measure of fear in response to those those realities. But this week is a little bit different. Not everyone sees the reality of judgment. Everyone is anxious about their life at one time or another. But very few people are concerned about their standing before God in the present time and especially throughout eternity. So as the preacher this morning, I want to act something like how the medical doctors have acted for us over the last couple months to wake us up to the weight of the reality that so many of us can't see. Now this is going to involve some bad news. But like other weeks, the only way that freedom comes is first by recognizing our chains. By first, and then we can see the one who sets us free. So I invite you to take a Bible and turn with me to the book of Romans, uh, chapter 7, and find verse 24. Romans 7, verse 24. It's in the New Testament. Uh, it is right after the book of Acts. Romans 7, 24. And we'll read through chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, if you're new to Old Oak Bible Church, these last few weeks have been different from business as usual, uh, just because this is such a unique time. It's, our, it's normal for us to walk through books of the Bible, just preaching it section by section uh, on its own terms is what we call expositional preaching. We're still beginning with texts this week, but we're not walking through books. We're selecting various passages of the Bible week by week. Uh, and we will return to that pattern next week as we head back into the book of Psalms, Lord willing. So Romans 7, verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now we're going to spend time this morning in the verses that come before this passage and even some of the verses that come after this passage. But just a disclaimer right out front that this is a very deep and rich portion of God's word. Uh, The famous well-known preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's from Wales. Uh, He spoke with a really particular accent and he preached throughout the 20th century. He preached some, I think, 27 sermons from Romans 7, verse 1 through Romans 8, verse 4 
Uh, so there is a lot there. And Romans 7 in particular raises a lot of questions to Bible interpreters. And the main one being, like, who is Paul talking about? Is Paul talking about a Christian experience or a non-Christian experience? You know, obviously we can't, we're limited in what we could do in one sermon. We'll try our best. But the main point I want us to take away from this portion of Scripture this morning on Easter Sunday is that there is a real dilemma about sin and judgment and it applies to you, but there is a way to freedom. There is a real dilemma about sin and judgment, and it applies to you, but there is a way to freedom. Our time this morning, we're just going to break down each one of those parts of that main point. There is a real dilemma about sin and judgment first. So you look at how verse 24 opens. And we have to say right off the bat that the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote this book, would not make a very good self-help motivational speaker, would he? I mean, the message that's pervasive in books and children's movies and daytime talk shows is that we can simply live out the best version of ourselves, that we are enough, that everything we need, our whole potential is inside of us all along. And the Apostle Paul right here doesn't really sing that tune. He says, wretched man that I am. You know, self-loathing isn't good for its own sake. So it's worth asking, what is it that brought Paul to say something like that? Well, to figure it out, we have to go and read before what happens in verse 24. So go earlier in Romans chapter 7 and find verses 5 and 6. And it's helpful to see verses 5 and 6 acting as a kind of thesis statement covering the rest of chapter 7 and the beginning part of chapter 8. Paul gives the lay of the land described here. So chapter, uh, verses 5 and 6. Hey, real quick, I know we're recording. Can you check if this is still up and recording? All right, great. Verses 5 and 6 act as a kind of thesis statement for chapters 7 and 8. Paul writes here, for while, we, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve the law in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So all of chapter 7, the rest of chapter 7, really covers the inability to do what is right apart from the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if you just tuned out there because that is a huge claim. Paul's describing just his frustrating experience of knowing what is right, but not being able to do it, never being able to get rid of the desire for wrong and sin that's in him. And throughout chapter 7, he makes... In describing this experience, he makes no mention of the Spirit of God, just of the presence of the Spirit in him, which is one of the reasons I'm led to think that Paul's describing an experience of a non-Christian, someone before they become a Christian. Paul continues, he writes that the law of God helped him know what was right and wrong, but it didn't help him do right, no matter how much he tried. That desire for wrong remained in him. 
It's like every quicksand scene you see in the movie, that the harder the person tries, just the deeper they fall into the mire. Looking at Romans 7 still, look at verses 13 and 14. Paul writes, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might, be, might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Think of the law like a COVID-19 test. A test will help you know whether or not you have a disease, but a test is not a vaccine. Paul having rules and knowing what God wants for him and knowing God's law did not cure Paul. All it did was show how bad Paul's problem was. And the problem was in Paul. It was something about him. He says sin had a hold on him. He was sold to sin. This is enslavement. This is something of complete and total defeat. Another reason why I'm thinking that this is an experience of a non-Christian, someone before they know Jesus. Verse 18, Paul summarizes, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. All this is what comes before Paul's desperate cry in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that word translated into wretched is used in other places in the Bible in connection to the misery and distress that comes upon people from the judgment of God. Wretched man that I am. Maybe to summarize what Paul is saying, Paul is saying, I am trapped under the power of sin and I am bound for hell under the penalty of sin. And I know this is the exact kind of cheery and hopeful Easter message that you wanted this morning. And these are big claims. So we want to do some investigating work here as to what lies underneath Paul's conclusion in verse 24. So Paul expresses this dilemma, right? But is he right to feel this dilemma? Is he right to be bothered by sin, by his tendencies? Should this even bother Paul at all? And what we want to do is just some Shrek work. If you know Shrek, that big green ogre, you know one of his famous lines is that ogres are like onions. They have layers. And what we want to do here is just peel back the layers of Paul's dilemma and see what informs his conclusion. And when we do that, when we begin to do that, underneath Paul's conclusion in verse 24 is truth about sin and truth about God. Truth about sin and truth about God. So Paul under, operates under the truth that sin is real. Controversial statement that there actually is something like a right and a wrong. That right and wrong are real things. But Paul speaks of this truth earlier on in his letter. You get a little more clarity. Romans chapter 2, verse 15. Paul writes, he says, how all the people are, account are accountable to God, even those who don't know the law of God, because God has given everyone a conscience. 
some sense of what is right and wrong. Now, Paul doesn't say that that conscience is perfect. And in other letters, Paul says that that conscience can be distorted. But everyone knows right and wrong to some extent. And everyone, knowing right and wrong, has chosen wrong. Now, most of us can probably get on board with that. All of a conscience, some sense of what's right and wrong, have chosen to do what is wrong. And we can say, and we say all the time, that nobody is perfect. Everybody has their bad days. But Paul knows the truth about sin that the rest of the Bible communicates. Paul knows that sin is more than the bad stuff we do. Sin is something of who we are. It's more than our behavior. Our behavior shows something about us, about our, the core of who we are. At its core, sin puts something in place of God. So the core of sin is deeper than how we live. It's what we live for. It's what we love the most. It's what lies underneath our entire way of life. You listen to what Paul writes earlier on in the book of Romans. Again, Romans chapter 1. He says, people exchange the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Exchanging God for something else. That's the core of sin. And you listen to how Paul talks in Romans 7. We can tell here that his dilemma is about more than just stuff he does. His dilemma is about who he is. At his core, what he wants the most, what he loves the most, what he desires the most. So underneath Paul's conclusion, wretched man that I am, is the truth that there is such a thing as sin, and that sin is more than just bad behavior. But we peel back the layer still, and we find that underneath Paul's conclusion is also truth about God. The truth that God cares about sin. The truth that God holds us accountable to him. Again, we see this earlier on in the book of Romans. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that the essence of sin is what we just talked about, exalting something else in the place of God in your heart and in your life. But he writes here in Romans 1 that doing that evokes God's wrath. That was a very Bible-y type term. It's God's settled opposition. See, over and over again in the Bible, God says that his glory he will not give to another. That is what he is committed to the most, his glory. It is the highest good in all of the universe. And Paul is saying that God judges those who do not live that way. God judges those and will find guilty those who do give glory to another, those who do exchange God for something else in their hearts. But out of his kindness, Paul writes that God has delayed that judgment. Chapter 2, verse 4 of Romans. And God delaying that judgment is meant to lead people to reconsider how they're living. So we just press pause on our onion peeling here. And for as tough and difficult as COVID-19 is, and we should see, try to discern and, and seek the Lord and all that he's doing in it. I think at the very least, one of the things God is doing is an opportunity that if there is any time for us to reconsider how we are living and to reconsider our standing and relationship 
to the God who made us, that time is now. Because as Paul continues in his letter to the Romans, God's judgment will not be delayed forever. Chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, he writes how every person will stand before God accountable and all will be found guilty of sin, falling short of God's character and God's glory, found guilty for exchanging God for something else in their heart and then in their lives. So you might be saying, Steve, this explanation has raised way more questions for me than it has answers. And that's probably a good thing. And maybe one of those questions is, why does God care so much about being the center of everything? Why does God care so much about getting glory? One helpful way I've heard it, you could think of it like this, that in a lot of families, when it's your birthday, you are the center of attention. You get to pick out the entire agenda for the day. Maybe you get gifts. You get to pick out the meal. You get special treatment. It's a good day, your birthday. But not everybody around you and your family is going to like that it's your birthday and not their birthday. Particularly your brothers and your sisters. Maybe your brothers or your sisters see you getting the attention and they lash out so some of the attention goes to them instead. And it's then that parents will say, no, no, listen. It's It's not your birthday. This is not your day. It's your sister's or your brother's day. So we think of all of life and in comparison to God. And we can tell ourselves, it is not our birthday. You know, God gets to act like he is the center of the universe. Do you know why? Because he is the center of the universe. And the original lie of Satan in the garden was that it was egotistical and callous and unloving for God to call Adam and Eve to trust in him and live for him instead of themselves. Satan's lie was that living for and trusting in God was not in Adam and Eve's best interest. That God was keeping Adam and Eve from something good. That Adam and Eve knew better how to get their own happiness than God did. That was Satan's lie. And friends, every time we sin in our whole lives, we fall for that same lie. God desiring glory for himself, God desiring us to listen to him, to worship to him, that does not keep us from something good. He knows that's what leads us into the most joy. Why else is it that all of our ways of our own living does not lead to any real and lasting satisfaction and happiness? Why is that? It's all right, fine. God desiring his own glory is good and it, and it can be good for us. Man, what about all this judgment stuff? Is all that really necessary? And if we, could, we can agree, though, I think, that if God is to be good, he has to care about what is bad. If God is to be good, he has to care about what is bad. And by the way, he is better at determining what is bad better than you and I are. We've grown a tolerance to what is bad, at least to some extent, more than we are aware. If God is to be good, he has to care about what is bad. And I think we can agree, too, that all of us desire judgment and justice to some extent. If you just look at the world around us, and you tell me that this, 
that there is nothing in this world that doesn't need to be made right. You can't tell me that. Paul will write later on in Romans 8 that the world, the creation, is groaning, waiting to be made right. You would think of all the wrong and the evil that goes unnoticed, that goes untried. And do you really want that to be the state of things forever? Of course you don't. You see, I think the problem most of us have is that we all want God to be a God of justice and judgment. But we don't want that justice and judgment for us. And I think that leads well into the next part of our main point. That there is a real dilemma about sin and judgment and it applies to you. You look back again at Romans 7, 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We've summarized what, what brought Paul to this conclusion, kind of the truths that lie underneath his conclusion, truth about sin and truth about God. But it's not enough just to acknowledge the reality of this dilemma in general. We have to see how this dilemma applies to us in particular. You know, there's a reason why we're puzzled. When we hear authorities figures say, you know, do as I say, not as I do. I don't know if you heard that growing up. Do as I say, not as I do. It's, it's good to acknowledge imperfections and our shortcomings. But when we hear that from an authority figure, we hear them saying, okay, so you're telling me that doing this action is good. But if you really believe that, you would do it yourself. It's not enough to say that this dilemma is real. We have to say this is a dilemma for us, for you, for me. A dilemma about sin and judgment. So you look at the cry of verse 24, we see someone who is convinced of his own guilt and his own helplessness. I know we haven't gotten to the cheery part of Easter yet, but friends, we have to understand this. We have to feel this. We have to be convinced of this if Easter is going to make any sense. Convinced of this if we really are to get freed from the fear of judgment. Wretched man that I am. This speaks of guilt. A man who's convinced of his own guilt. Who knows he is under a penalty. Who, like we've said, knows that he's not just done bad things, but is guilty even at the core of who he is. Of what he desires the most. And friend, do you know that this applies to quote-unquote good people as well? This applies to good people as well. A couple of months ago, as we were walking through the book of Mark, uh, we read the story of Jesus encountering a man who's referred to as the rich young ruler. And this is a man who, by all accounts, was an upstanding, religious, uh, do-gooder, and bad avoider. But Jesus exposed what was in the rich young ruler's heart. Jesus brought the rich young ruler to a crossroads where he had to decide whether he would follow his money or whether he would follow Jesus. So if you want to know what you love the most, if you want to know what's really operating as the God of your heart, you can ask yourself questions like this, that what is it if you lost it would make you feel like life wasn't worth living at all? What is it if you finally gained it would make you feel like life was actually accomplished and achieved? 
These are familiar questions if you've been around Old Oak for some time, but these are questions still that give some indication of what's really operating as the king and God of our hearts, of what we really are worshiping and serving. Guilt. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? This is a man who knows he's under a penalty. And this is a man who knows he is helpless to get himself out from under this penalty. Who will deliver me? You see, we can't just be convinced of our guilt. We also have to be convinced of our helplessness. Jesus said that whoever sins is a slave to sin. Whoever sins is a slave to sin. Again, another controversial statement because our immediate response should be, well, yeah, maybe I do bad things once in a while, but I don't feel like I'm a slave to sin. Well, friend, have you ever considered that the deepest form of slavery are those who don't even realize that they're slaves? You think back to the Israelites in the wilderness, talking about the book of Numbers, and even before that too, over and over again, the Israelites in the wilderness cried out to Moses saying, why in the world did you bring us out here? We should go back to Egypt. We had free food in Egypt. And then we read that and say, what, what are, you, are you kidding me? Are you insane? Of course you had free food in Egypt. You were slaves. It's like hotels telling you that your food and breakfast is included. It is free. No, it's not free. You pay for it in your bill. Israelites, why would you... Why would you want to go back to Egypt? Of course, they might not have been physical slaves anymore. But that doesn't mean that they weren't still spiritual slaves to their sin. You want to look at your chains a little bit, your, our slavery to sin. I think most of us would agree that the golden rule is good. Something like the golden rule is good, you know. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. You want to be convinced of sin's grip on you. Try following the golden rule, I don't know, for eight hours. Try following the golden rule perfectly for eight hours. As one pastor puts it, meet all the needs of other people with the same joy, creativity, and speed in which you meet your own. Be as excited about the successes of other people that they experience that you would be as if it came to you. Do that perfectly. And if you think you can do this, let me tell you something. You are not trying hard enough. It should not take you long to see your helplessness. That like Paul, the more you try to do good, the more you see just the underlying grip that evil and sin has on you. The selfishness, the grip of that has on you. We can't just be convinced of our guilt we have to be convinced of our helplessness. We can't just confess our sin. We have to confess what we're holding up as our righteousness, what we're holding up as our help. And you know, this works for the Apostle Paul as well. In another one of his letters, his letter to the Philippians, Paul wrote about what he used to hold up before God to try to convince God and justify himself that Paul was, in fact, a good and righteous person. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, 
that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's what he held up before God. God, look at all this about me. This is my righteousness. And Paul came to realize that trying to convince God of his own righteousness by what he's done and who he is is thinking something like a penny can purchase the fortune of Bill Gates. It's offensive. In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller gives the example of the movie Rocky. And at one point in the story, Rocky's girlfriend, Adrian, asked him why it was so important for Rocky to go the distance in his boxing match. And Rocky replied, when I go the distance, then I'll know I'm not a bum. What is that for you? What is it that justifies your existence and your worth and your mind and your heart? What is it that you hold up before God as your righteousness? Here, God, this is what I've done. This is who I am. This is what makes me good and acceptable in your sight. Some kind of achievement, some kind of attainment, some kind of virtue, relationships, approval. And I want you to ask yourself, is what you hold up before God really enough to get rid of your guilt? Is what you hold up before God really enough to get you free from the grip that sin has on your heart? And I hope by now you feel the dilemma and feel it a little more personally. Because, you know, there are routes we can venture down to attempt to attain freedom from this dilemma. You know, one of those routes would be to deny our guilt, to downplay it, to define it on our own terms, to say, you know what, you know, I, I've never killed anybody. To deny our guilt, you know, to say something like, you know, God is love and he's going to love us no matter what we do. I mean, we, just, we know deep down that that doesn't work. We know deep down that guilt and justice are real. And we know deep down that that line of thinking that God is just going to love us no matter what, no matter what we do, he doesn't care, that line of thinking can justify literally any way of living. So that's one of the routes we can go down, denying our guilt. The other route we can go down is denying our helplessness. This is the lie of legalism. That if we live by certain rules, avoid certain vices, then we will accumulate enough to justify ourselves in the sight of God, to say, God, we are righteous. And when we think of legalism, we think of strict ways of living, you know, very tight ways of living. And, and yes, it applies to that, but it doesn't just apply to that. This is the natural mode of our hearts, thinking that we can justify ourselves in the sight of God. This, is, this doesn't always look like a strict way of living. This looks like the virtue signaling that's so common today. That we are justified, that we have accumulated enough because we are sufficiently woke that we sufficiently have the right amount of virtues and that we avoid the intolerant other virtues that other people have. That we're not those libs, that we're not those conservatives. Justify ourselves. Make us feel better about how we live based on what we do. Friend, it's only when we see the futility of both of those routes, denying our guilt, denying our helplessness, that neither of them will work 
that's the only time when we will see the gospel. Only time when we will see the gospel. You see, before Paul summarizes his dilemma again, at the very end of verse 25, he interrupts his concluding cry at the beginning of verse 25. Do you see that there? He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel is not licentiousness. It's not you can do anything you want and God will still love you. The gospel does not deny our guilt. It affirms it in a big way. The gospel neither is not legalism. It does not deny our helplessness. No, the gospel says we are guilty. We are helpless. The gospel says that the bad news, a bad news about you is worse than you ever thought. But the gospel also, that means that the good news is better than we ever realized. Friend, what is it that calms Paul's fear? What is it that settles Paul's frustration, that gives him confidence and relief and hope before God? It's Jesus Christ and his finished work. That's what it is. Friend, I wonder, is that the same for you? Is that what calms your fear, settles your frustration, gives you confidence, hope, and relief before God? Jesus Christ and his finished work. Christian, is that true of you? Or have you somehow left the gospel and Jesus behind? It doesn't just apply for us when we are first converted and saved. It is for our whole life. So you remember when Paul talked about all the stuff he used to hold up before God and say, God, this is my righteousness. God, this justifies me in the sight of you. He called that stuff rubbish. Literally dung and not a nice word for dung either. And listen to how Paul went on after that in the book of Philippians. He said, all that stuff I left behind, I counted as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So what, God, what Paul now held up before God was not his own life, but Jesus' perfect life given to him. Not his righteousness, Jesus' righteousness. So what is it that solves the dilemma that Paul has been talking about in Romans 7, 24? What's the answer? What's the answer to being trapped under the penalty of sin? It's Jesus. He states it again in Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want us just to stare at that verse and appreciate its beauty. That word, therefore, therefore, tells us that there is another conclusion besides chapter 7, verse 24. It's a conclusion not of defeat, but of victory. There is, therefore, now. That word, now, tells us that something new has arrived. There is a new era of redemption and freedom, and it is here now 
It's not waiting to come five years from now when you finally get your act together. No, it is here now. There is therefore now no condemnation. It does not say there is therefore now less condemnation as if we had still some for ourselves that we had to pay for. No, there is therefore now no condemnation. Now, this doesn't mean that we won't have to repent of our sins, that we won't have to make uh, wrongs right, that we won't have to apologize to others and apologize to those who we've sinned against and seek to make that right. But there is therefore now no condemnation means that we are free from God's judgment because judgment is satisfied. We are not condemned because Jesus was condemned in our place. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You notice here, those who are in Christ Jesus, that does not apply to everybody. It applies to those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's a curious way to put it. This is Paul describing the Christian's unity with Jesus' death and resurrection in Christ Jesus. I think a helpful way to think about this is to think of being in Christ Jesus geographically. Geographically. It wouldn't be controversial for us to say that if it's raining and you want to stay dry, that you will get wet unless you have some kind of shelter and protection. It's not controversial for us to say that. If we are without God's shelter, or shelter and protection, God's judgment for our sin will fall on us. Which is why we need to be in Christ Jesus. When we are in Christ Jesus, God's judgment that falls on us for our sin now falls on Jesus. God provided his son a willing sacrifice so that the judgment for our sin would fall on him. This is the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took the condemnation we deserved and then gave us his perfect righteousness. And how do we know for sure that his death accomplished this? Three days later, Easter morning, he rose again. Friends, this is what we sing about. Think of the lines from the great hymns. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Rock of ages cleft for me. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. This morning, are you in Christ Jesus? Are you in Christ Jesus? Friend, do you know that you can be? You turn from your sin, turn from that way of living, of exchanging God for something else in your heart, and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin, to pay the penalty for your sin. 
and follow him as the Lord of your life and be in Christ Jesus. Christian brother and sister, you know this. I know you know this. But would you keep Jesus in front of you every single day? And would you remember the guiltiness and helplessness that your Savior saved you from? And doing that, the words, Jesus, thank you, should be on your lips all the time. All the time. Every day. Would Jesus and his finished work for you be the basis of your daily, moment-by-moment gratitude? Jesus, thank you. And there's a bonus truth here. A bonus truth of Jesus freeing us from judgment, the judgment that we deserve by taking it on himself. The bonus truth is that Jesus frees us from more than the penalty of sin. Jesus also frees us from the power of sin. That the gospel is good not just for our justification so that God declares us righteous, but the gospel is also good for our sanctification so that God actually makes us righteous. So as Jesus sets us free from judgment, he now fuels our hearts and takes over our lives. This refuge that we hide in is almost like now a solar panel that gives us energy for all of life to live for him. You listen to how Paul keeps on going in Romans 8, verse 2. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Freed from the law of sin and death. Spirit of life. Now, a lot of people want to say that Romans 7 is a Christian's experience because they can relate deeply to being frustrated with why they do the stuff they know that is wrong. And it's true. The book of James says that we all still stumble in many ways. But when we are frustrated with ourselves, and when we feel constantly defeated, and we feel that we are not good enough, we should remember that, of course, we are not good enough. That's exactly why we rejoice that we are in Christ Jesus that we have a gracious and merciful Savior who paid for all of our sins, that the verdict is in, that sin is paid for, covered. And friends, when it's been a while, when you've walked with the Lord for a long time, and you've become forgetful, and you've developed subtle patterns in your life of superiority to others, looking down at other people, being overly critical all the time, remember You are not justified because of you. We are saved by grace. We are in Christ Jesus, not ourselves. It is finished, paid for, no condemnation, freed from the fear of judgment. God is not ashamed of us. Because of Jesus, God owns us as his children. And you know, this Jesus' finished work, no condemnation, bearing all the judgment that we deserve, 
That does not free us up to live however we want. In fact, when we truly get this, when we truly internalize this, this does not keep us from repentance. This actually leads us into repentance. Because the same Jesus that died for you, bearing the judgment for your sin that you deserved, is the same one who rose from the dead and is at work in you, is at work in those who he saved. Listen to one of Paul's prayers, his prayers for the Christians in Ephesus. He prayed that God would help them know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So what is it that Paul wants the Christians in Ephesus to know? He wants them to know that the same Spirit of God that rose Jesus from the dead is at work in those who trust in Jesus. That same Spirit of God, he wants them to know that. Christian, would you pray that yourself, that you know that? So whether you feel frustrated with yourself, whether you feel defeated all the time, whether you just kind of feel blah or indifferent, Christian, our walk with Christ grows sweeter and sweeter, not because we have new rules, but because we have new life, new hearts, new desires. And when the new desires of your heart feel like mere embers and not a flame, we remember our Savior's sweet words that a bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not put out, Go to your Savior again and plead with him to fan the embers of your heart so that you would taste and see afresh the risen king. That he would remove what stiffens your appetite for him. Plead with him for that. And plead with him that he would help you walk in the joyous freedom that he died for you to live in. Freedom from fear of judgment. In a way, freedom from fear of judgment is the foundation of all the previous weeks. We've kind of worked backwards. There's no matter the uncertainty, no matter the suffering, no matter death. Jesus Christ has delivered those who trust in him from the wrath to come that they deserve. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we say this morning those three words that we need to say all the time. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you for the, living the life that we did not live. Living the life God, that we couldn't live. Living perfect righteousness. Jesus, thank you for dying the death we deserve, bearing the condemnation we deserve. Jesus, thank you that we go free. Help us walk in that freedom with new life, new hearts, new desires. Fan the embers into a flame. We pray that more this morning you would draw them in so that they are in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.